You know, some stories in the Bible have some type of parallel in other ancient cultures and other ancient societies. Uh, for example, you've got the, the Gilgamesh epic, the creation epic, uh, you know, that some people, some scholars say, well, it's just like the Genesis creation story, and it's really not, other than there's a creation. Uh, there's a lot of differences between the two, but, you know, there's some type of parallel there. And then you have um, just about in every ancient culture, there's a flood narrative, like a big, giant, universal flood uh, narrative. There's some ancient story in almost every culture of a, of a worldwide flood or, or a great flood. And, you know, it sort of makes you wonder, how in the world could all the cultures of the world have that type of narrative? You know, it almost leads you to believe that there, I don't know, was a flood a long time ago, you know. Um, but there's other stories in the Bible that are very unique to the Bible itself. And one of them is the uh, story of Jonah. Now, uh, now there's obviously stories of, of men being swallowed by whales. You know, even modern stories of men being swallowed by big fish or by whales and even surviving. You know, it happens from time to time. Um, but that's really not the whole story of Jonah. You know, Jonah's story is really quite unique because you get into the heart and the mind of the man Jonah. So here you have uh, Jonah, this guy who is presumably a man of God. And I, I say presumably a man of God because, you know, I've never done a study in the Bible of, of that term, man of God, to see what actually might qualify a person to be called a man of God. But I would say probably somewhere at the very basic, minimal, foundational level a man of God has to be someone that, I don't know, obeys God. Wouldn't you say that? Uh, because if a man was known to do his own thing, we would call him, oh, he's his own man, right? Or if a man always did what his wife wants, that man is both smart and he is her man, right? Uh, but you take a man who has the tendency to obey God, that may be qualified to be called a man, of, a man of God. And so you have Jonah, who's a man of God with one little exception. He didn't like to do what God said. Yeah, and I think that's a pretty big exception but to be called a man of God. But, so you have Jonah minding his own business, and somehow God speaks to his heart and says, Jonah, I want you to go east. I want you to go all the way to the capital city of Assyria, to the enemies of God's people, to that great city, Nineveh. And I want you to tell the Ninevites this one thing. Judgment's coming. God is going to judge you. That's all I want you to say. And Jonah's response to God's command was, no. He said it just like that. No, I'm not going to do that. In fact, let me show you, God, how serious I am when I say no. You want me to go east? I'm going to go west. I'm going to go down to the coast. I'm going to go to that great port city, Joppa, and I'm going to get on a ship. And I'm going to take that ship all the way 
to Tarshish. Where's Tarshish? Scholars believe it's modern-day Spain. A long way away from modern-day Israel, wouldn't you say? That's how far away I'm going to get from you, God, and from obeying you, God. I'm going to go all the way to Tarshish. And the Lord didn't really respond except in actions. And so one thing led to another. Jonah was thrown overboard into the middle of the sea. He's this close to drowning. When the Lord sends a great whale, and it swallows Jonah. The whale was not Jonah's punishment. The whale was Jonah's transportation. And so the great whale did a U-turn, took Jonah back, presumably maybe close to the port of Joppa, Joppa where he began. And the whale, you know when you got something that you ate and it just doesn't sit right on your stomach? And there's really only one of two ways it can go. The Lord showed mercy on Jonah. And that whale vomited Jonah up onto the beach. Maybe Jonah cleaned himself up. Maybe not. Would have made a better story if he didn't. But nevertheless, Jonah got up. He decided, I think God's serious. I think I can't get away from this God. And so... He went on his way to Nineveh. You know the story. He spent three days walking the streets of Nineveh, preaching one message. God's going to judge you. God's judgment is coming. That's it. But why didn't he want to do this in the first place? Because he knew the character of God. He knew that if he preached judgment to the Ninevites, they might get their act right. They might turn from their wicked ways, repent, and the Lord might save them. I think Jonah had another plan. Jonah's plan was, how about this, God? We don't say anything to them, and you go ahead and judge them. You know, just wipe them out. That way we'll all be happy, right? But that wasn't God's plan. And God's plan was not up for debate. And so Jonah obeyed. God did, in fact, save the Ninevites from their sin. And then Jonah, being now a mature man of God, he pouted. He had a pity party. He said, I knew it. God, that's just like you. Saving those Gentiles. I knew you would do that. And he was mad. Mad at God. And at the very end of the book of Jonah, God simply gives a simple defense. Jonah, these people don't know their right hand from their left. And I created them. Don't you think I can save them if I want to? Well, and so the story of Jonah ends. But that's not the end of the story of Nineveh. What happened after Jonah? After all of Jonah's days? Well, here's what happened. A generation passed and another generation passed in Nineveh, and those people forgot the Lord. Those people went back to doing the wickedness that their forefathers did and repented of. And yet they were not so repentant. In fact, they were so wicked that in 722 B.C., 
They invaded Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, conquered that nation, destroyed the nation, and took the Israelites, many of them at least, captive, took them off into exile back to Assyria. The Lord was not pleased with this, and obviously if you were an Israelite in that day and you were taken from your homeland and you were made essentially a slave in another land, you wouldn't be happy either. And the people of God cried out to God for relief. About a hundred years after that, about a hundred years after they were taken into captivity, the Lord raised up a new prophet. This guy's name was Nahum. Nahum had a simple message in his book. The message was essentially this. People of God, relief is coming. I am going to judge this nation for their sin against me and for harming you, my people. And this is how the book of Nahum begins after the very first verse, which is simply an introduction. Nahum chapter 1, verse 2, the prophecy begins this way. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is fierce in wrath. The Lord takes vengeance against his foes. He is furious. With his enemies. You get the idea of the situation. You can hear the tone, can't you? God's not messing around. God is about to take vengeance against Nineveh. And this time there will be no escape. But there's a specific word that's used in this verse. Where the Lord describes himself. And it's a word that might cause some confusion or misunderstanding. And it's a word that I want us to focus on today. It's the word jealous. He is a jealous God. What does that mean? That the Lord is a jealous God. Now you and I know what jealousy looks like from a human perspective, right? I mean, from a sinful perspective, jealousy looks like this. Someone has something that you wish you had, and so you're jealous of them. Or some, someone is Something that you wish you were. And so you're jealous of that person. Men today say things like, man, I wish I was Tom Brady. I'm so jealous of Tom Brady. I wish I was Tom Brady. He's got everything. Fame, wealth, good looks, Super Bowl rings. Man, he's got it all. I'm so jealous of him. Women get jealous of each other. She's so thin. She's so young. She's so beautiful. She's so successful. I hate that woman. I wish I was her. And then people, you know, if you were actually able to become that type of person, people would start hating you, and then women would say, why does everybody hate me? I don't know. I wish I was somebody else. We all have this tendency to wish we were somebody else, don't we? Wish we were somehow better, greater, richer, famous, whatever. Well, that kind of jealousy, the jealousy that's connected to selfish envy, that kind of jealousy is rooted in some deep-seated insecurities. We don't like something about ourselves. 
or, or we fear losing somebody. We fear losing something. And so we have this insecurity within us. And jealousy wells up. Well, that, that's a human, a sinful kind of jealousy. And, and it makes us, in the end, that kind of jealousy makes us angry. It makes us sad. It makes us resentful. It makes us ashamed. It makes us disgusted. It makes us very much more unlike the type of person that we really wish we were. Well, certainly that's not, that's not what it means when God says that he is jealous. Why? Because God doesn't wish he had something somebody else has. I mean, God has everything, right? Everything is his. God doesn't wish he was somebody else. Everyone else is less than who God is. Everyone else is insufficient in some way. But God is the greatest. God is completely sufficient. He's self-sufficient. He's self-sustaining in every single way. There is nothing that God lacks. And so the idea that, that God is jealous in some type of lowly, insecure, human way, well, that's ridiculous. But it's important that we understand what jealousy means when God says that he is a jealous God. Because otherwise, we might be led astray. I'll give you a real-life example. And I'm not picking on her. Oprah Winfrey. Okay? Oprah Winfrey tells the story of why she left her Baptist upbringings. And she began to teach what is really New Age spirituality. Not Christian at all. She says that in her mid-twenties, she was about 26 or 27 years old, she was at church, very dynamic preacher, and the preacher was talking about God's omnipotence and God's omniscience. And then the preacher said that God is a jealous God. Well, either the preacher interpreted what that meant wrong or she interpreted it wrong, but she came to this conclusion it didn't sit well with her because this was the question that she wondered. If God is the greatest being ever, then why is he jealous of me? That was her conclusion. That the Bible taught that the greatest being ever was jealous of us. Well, I have news for for Oprah, if she were to listen, news for you, news for me. God is not jealous of us. That's not what God's jealousy means. And if we just take five minutes to look at what the Bible actually says when it talks about God's jealousy, we would discover from God's own words what his jealousy really means. First point is this. God is jealous for his name. What does this mean? He's jealous for his name. When we talk about God's name, as this entire series is doing, looking at different names of God, we're talking about his character. We're talking about who God is. God's name is a reflection of who God truly is. Let me explain to you how what we call a person is connected to that person's character. Okay? If I said, your mother is a sweet lady, you would probably be very pleased about that. 
Now, a few of you might look at you and say, are you talking to me, my mother? You know? uh, but you would probably very, be very pleased if I said, your mother is a sweet, wonderful lady. But if I said to you, you know what? Your mother is a so-and-so. You might want to punch me in the nose, right? How dare I offend your mother's character by calling her a name, right? Do you see how a person's name and character are connected? We understand that, right? So when I talk about God being jealous for his name, it means that God is holy. It means that God is worthy to be praised. God's name is to be honored. God's name is to be lifted up. God's name is precious. God's name is good. And if we dare to diminish God's name by lowering it to the level of other so-called gods or lowering it to the level of humanity or even, God forbid, lowering it to the level of animals and created things, then we do so at our own peril. God is jealous for his name. He will not allow his name to be dragged in the mud and go unanswered for it. God will answer his mockers. And that is why we read this in the Ten Commandments. In Exodus chapter 20, verses 3 and 4, do not have other gods besides me. Do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters beneath the earth. God says he is jealous for his name. The next verse, verse 4 continues to read this way. Verse 5 actually reads this way. Do not bow and worship to them, and do not serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, bringing the consequences of the Father's iniquity on the children to the third and fourth generations. A generation later, Joshua, the man of God, reprimanded the Israelites, for worshiping other gods. In Joshua 24, we read, Joshua told the people, you will not be able to worship the Lord because he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions and sins. If you abandon the Lord and worship foreign gods, he will turn against you, harm you, and completely destroy you after he has been good to you. You see, God is jealous for his name. And because he is jealous for his name, he's also jealous for his people. The ones that his name and his character rests upon. And that's the second point about God's jealousy. He's jealous for his name, and he's jealous for his people. And that's what we see at the beginning of the book of Nahum that we read earlier. 
Nahum 1-2, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance in his fierce and wrath. The Lord takes vengeance against his foes. He is furious with his enemies. The word jealous is the Hebrew word kana. Kana. In the Hebrew Bible, that word is only used of God, never of man. And that's another indication that God's jealousy is completely unlike any type of human jealousy that rests in insecurity and selfishness. When we say that God is jealous for his people, it means that he cares for us with great intensity. It means he protects us with great intensity. And it means, if necessary, he will avenge us with great intensity. God's heart is set on us. God's intention is to develop us into his own holy character of love. But if God's people are unfaithful to him, if God's people take his holy name and lessen it to the place of other created beings, other, human, other types of humans or other types of lesser spiritual beings, then God's jealousy for his own name will drive him even to judge his own people. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, a very famous verse, it reads this way. Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These words that I'm giving you today are to be in your heart. Repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Bind them as a sign on your hand and let them be a symbol on your forehead. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your city gates. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he would give you a land with large and beautiful cities that you did not build, houses full of every good thing that you did not fill them with, cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. And when you eat and are satisfied, be careful not to forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Fear the Lord your God. Worship Him. And take your oaths in His name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the peoples around you. For the Lord your God, who is among you, is a jealous God. Otherwise, the Lord your God will become angry with you. And will obliterate you from the face of the earth. Do not test the Lord your God as you tested him at Massah. Listen, what you need to know about God's jealousy is this God is jealous for you, He loves you so, so very much. He cares for you. He protects you. And should harm ever befall you, 
the Lord will judge those who harm you. He will avenge you. God's jealousy means that we are to always uphold the holy name and the character of God. We must never, ever turn to worship anyone other than the Lord our God. You know, we ought to be grateful that God has even allowed us Gentiles. I would assume that most of us in this room are not Jewish. We're Gentiles. And God would allow us Gentiles to even worship Him. We should be grateful for that. You know, God brought us into His family because He made a promise to Abraham some 4,000 years ago. And that promise was to bless all of the nations of the earth. And God brought us into His family for a second reason. And I want you to understand this reason as well. He brought us into his family because he is a jealous God. Let me show you. In Deuteronomy 32, Moses sings a song. He sings a song to the elders of Israel. Moses is an old, old man by this point. In fact, when Moses began most of his journey, he was already old. But now... He's approaching 120. And so Moses gathers the elders of Israel, and he sings a song to them before he dies. This song is actually a witness against them for being unfaithful to the Lord. And Moses speaks of the nation of Israel as if the nation were one man. And this is part of Moses' song. He, the nation of Israel, he abandoned the God who made him and scorned the rock of his salvation. They provoked his jealousy with different gods. They enraged him with detestable practices. They sacrificed to demons, not God, to gods they had not known. New gods that had just arrived, which your ancestors did not fear. You ignored the rock who gave you birth. You forgot the God who gave birth to you. When the Lord saw this, he, despi he despised them, angered by his sons and daughters. He said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what will become of them, for they are a perverse generation. Unfaithful children, they have provoked my jealousy. With what is not a God. They have enraged me with their worthless idols. So, I will provoke their jealousy with what is not a people. I will enrage them with a foolish nation. Do you understand this? Israel provoked God's jealousy by worshiping non-gods. And so God says, I will provoke Israel's jealousy by bringing into my family a people who aren't even a people. You want to worship non-gods? I'm going to bring into my family a non-people. He's talking about Gentiles. He's talking about you and me. That's why we read in Romans at the hand of the Apostle Paul, 
this question in Romans chapter 10, verse 19. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses said, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that lacks understanding. Then in the next chapter, Paul says, I ask then, have they, Israel, stumbled so as to fall? Absolutely not. On the contrary, by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. Israel's disobedience and lack of faith in the Lord provoked God's jealousy. And our obedience of faith in Israel's Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, will provoke Israel's jealousy. And they will, in God's perfect timing, come back to him. God has an incredible plan that he is working out in his history, in his perfect timing. And he has allowed you and me a people that are not even a people, to be his people, to become part of his family. How do we become a part of God's family? It is by receiving the Lord Jesus Christ. It is by receiving Israel's Messiah into our lives and submitting our lives to him. We do so by admitting who we are as sinners, as people who have gone astray, done our own thing, violated the Ten Commandments. And we come to God in mercy and we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and we commit ourselves to follow him for the rest of our lives. This is the invitation that is for you. If today you are not yet a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we invite you to become one. God's invitation stands open and ready, but his salvation always comes today. Tomorrow never comes. Today is the day of your salvation. Will you respond?